0: My guest today is a former marine attack helicopter pilot who flew hundreds of missions throughout the most war-torn and dangerous areas of the Middle East. He served on the staff of the Joint Chiefs. He was an associate professor of national security strategy and policy at the National War College and was special advisor to the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. His book is called Ghosts of Baghdad. Colonel Eric Buer. Welcome to Can You Survive This Podcast? Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So um, let's jump right in. Can you tell the audience a little bit about um your military history? Like when did you get into the military and what inspired you to join? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I uh,
1: you know, I found the military kind of like most young men and women do. Uh in my case, I was a I was a freshman in college and I was just thinking about what I wanted to kind of do already Not the college anywhere close to being over so I walked into a recruiter's office and uh and found my way into a marine and uh, those those silver tongue devils have a way of uh, telling you they can promise you everything but actually I learned a lot And the he talked to me about becoming an officer talking about the ability to go fly and flight training and so I signed up and uh You know, it was, uh, it was a little bit culture shock for me. Uh, The Marine Corps does things a little bit different than, than uh, you would expect, Uh, but it was a great fit. It's a team organization. They're very, they're, they're they're team focused. Um, And so I got a chance to go to flight training and then time just kind of went by for me. So I graduated from college in 1988, you know, decades ago now. Um, But I served until uh, 2016 when I retired as an air group commander uh, but I loved it. I loved every minute of it. You know, you people ask me what I miss, you know, do I miss flying the attack helicopters? And of course I do I miss the challenge, but you miss people. You miss a sense of focus and sense of mission. Uh, you miss the camaraderie, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of shenanigans and a lot of, you know, a lot of fun times. So that's what I kind of miss the most, but yeah, it's, uh, I didn't think I'd be in the Marine Corps this long or, or, or that long. Uh, but, uh, you know, just challenges kept coming and I kept kind of accepting them and then time, time kind of goes by and then, and at some point in your life, you got to step off
0: and uh, you got to off ramp and, and and find the next career. So, how did you end up becoming an attack helicopter pilot?
1: So, when you go to flight training, uh, you know you're the Navy trains, uh, you know all Navy pilots, Coast Guard, Marine Corps pilots, along with a bunch of internationals. And so, um, it's the needs of the service. So, when I I got through the the initial stages of flight training, they say, "Hey, um, we need helicopter pilots." So, I'm great. And then uh, the next stage of training you go through and you work as hard as you possibly can. And then, uh, at the end of the, when you get your, you know, you're getting become a winged aviator, they come back and they say, here are your opportunities. You, know, you, you generally, you can choose you know, East coast, West coast, what, you know, performance, you know, type of aircraft you want based on your performance. And so I was fortunate. I, you know, I selected, uh, I selected Cobras, um, cause I knew it just kind of fits, uh, kind of my mindset fits the mission. Um, You support Marines on the ground and you're, we all support Marines on the ground. That's our focus, but I can do it in a way that really no one else can. And so
0: that's what I found really unique uh, and challenging about uh, wanting to fly attack helicopters. And so does that mean that you're the pilot of a helicopter and someone else is like, um, you know, shooting weapons to provide cover or what does the job kind of entail? So, yeah. There's two pilots in, uh,
1: in, in all attack helicopters uh, normally. So, you know, the Apaches, the Cobras, those are two U.S. attack helicopters. So pilot in the front seat does the majority of the shooting. Uh, the pilot in the back seat can certainly shoot gun, shoot rockets, shoot some other um, specific type of weapons. But you're always, you're a team. You're, you're, you're kind of like one person executing the flying and in the, in the employment of the aircraft. And you always operate in the minimum of pairs. So there's always two, two aircraft flying at once at least two, sometimes, you know, three, four,
0: um, at a time. And you, did you spend a lot of time in the Middle East? We did, you know, as a, as a youngster,
1: as a Lieutenant and Captain, I you know, served in the Persian Gulf, uh, served in Somalia, served in Bosnia. Um, and then coming back, uh, you know, doing multiple tours, I came back the, to the, uh, back to the Cobra again in, uh, as a major in a, in a Lieutenant Colonel, and did uh, multiple tours in Iraq flying cobras so yeah, a good chunk of deployment uh, deploying time I and mean, I don't have that certainly no no near a record of the amount of deployments I did but I I got my fair share of deploying
0: wow so can you share um any stories from your time as a pilot where uh, maybe you were in the middle east and any t- any stories where maybe You had an experience where, like, you didn't think you'd make it out, and somehow you somehow you survived. Uh, Yeah, I've got a few of those. Uh, And uh, so,
1: the the interesting thing about about flying in general is, um, I believe you always think you're going to make it out. You know, I believe any pilot worth their salt believes they're going to make it out until they don't. That's just that's just the way it is. Like you're fighting. You're fighting the machine. You're fighting the weather. You're fighting an enemy. You're fighting conditions, and you you're, you're you, no one just throws their hands up in the air and says, "Well, that's it. You know, it's we're toast." You know, it doesn't work that way. Um, so, no. I had a couple. You know, I just I'll, just I'll just share the opening night in 2003 going over the border. Um, it was a in March of 2003, tremendous sandstorm, um, and uh, you you really couldn't see more than probably four or 500 feet in front of you. And we were flying at about a hundred feet, maybe a little bit higher, large formation. Um, I'm leading two helicopters and there's attack helicopters. There's two more attack helicopters. And we have a bunch of Marines we're trying to put into Southern Iraq on the first, the opening, opening night of the war. And it was so dark. I mean, tremendously, tremendously dark. And, uh, you can get disoriented. I remember getting terribly disoriented and I'm, you know, I've got my nose, the aircraft pointed right at the ground and, uh, young co out in the front seats, like, Hey, you know, I just, you know, what are you doing? And uh, the problem when that happens is your wingman is following you. And so I just feel, you know, power come in, nose pitch up. Um, as I just try to fly in the ground. Um, and so you didn't really have time to think about that as I try to, you know, put us both there um, and we roll onto a target and you roll onto an active target. And then, there's there's an enemy there. There's a thinking agile enemy, and you got to quickly clear your brain of that and refocus. And then remember that it's you know it's not about me. It's about those Marines we're trying to put it on the ground. It's about an enemy force. that's trying to do harm to us and to them. And so you really have to um, again we talk about compartmentalizing what we're doing, but compartmentalize it. So it didn't sound as dangerous right now, but the the, the entire flight was was that way. The entire flight was every single person. they were really struggling to maintain awareness, flying in a sandstorm. And I remember when we landed, um, the mission wasn't as successful as we wanted. And planners on the ground were debating whether we were going to go again. And I could tell all of us just looking at each other's eyes and saying, yeah, we go back out. We're not going to make we're just not going to come back. Like We just we've never flown those conditions ever again. By hook or by crook, we got back. Um, Some didn't. Tragically, some didn't that night. So that was that was really my wake up call. You know, I certainly had other events where uh, where the enemy gets a real active vote with me um, and they they voted often, as we'd say. Uh, But this one was really kind of the most it's kind of a pinnacle event early on where you realize this this type of flying is going to be like flying you've never done before.
2: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? First ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
0: So in that scenario, it was really nature that was the biggest challenge. It was.
1: It was me. It was on me uh, to keep the aircraft up and flying. And it was absolutely nature. It was a sandstorm. You can't see. Um, and we have night vision goggles. We have forward-looking infrared. We have the sensors to help you look through it. But uh, night vision goggles can't see through a sandstorm, um, and it mutes all the light. Um, and so normally, and it was a no-moon night, so you count on the moon to give your night vision a little bit of illumin- extra illumination, and you count on stars if there's no illumination. Uh, we had really none, so it was super dark, super hard to see, super hard to keep yourself aware, um, but it was, to, it was my job to do it. And uh, In that case, I, I, I was... You know, I gave
0: myself a, a D. I didn't fail, but I was about as close as you could get. Wow. Yeah, I, I can't imagine trying to, I mean, when I'm driving a car and I can't, if it's like stormy and I can't see, I'm like, oh man, what am I going to do? So I can't imagine adding in the factor of being in the air and then also being in a war zone. Um, but yeah, so I guess if you can't see, are you just relying on, the the stars and the technology in the aircraft and that's about it. Yeah. So that in that in that scenario, you're you're flying your instruments. So you
1: we have a heads-up display in the Cobra, which gives you all your primary flight instruments. So you, you trust your instruments to keep you, you know, on a steady altitude, steady airspeed, steady course. Um but you're also trying to follow a lead. You're looking for other aircraft, you're looking for an enemy. So you got a lot going on trying to scan all these things at once and if if you're not paying attention, um it can bite you. It can bite you real quick because you get, you get spatially, we call it spatially disoriented. Like there's, there's no ground reference. So it makes it a little bit harder.
0: Yeah. And so this may be a dumb question, but like your, your instruments in the helicopter, if you were coming up on like a large Hill or a mountain or a sudden change in like the elevation of the terrain, then your instruments would tell you that hopefully in time. no, no 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 it's it's right
1: so we have what's called a radar altimeter it tells you exactly how high you are above the ground but it only tells you where you've been right so, so yeah so they have some aircraft have what's called terrain following and terrain avoidance radar uh like the B1 has that uh, so very some of the more sophisticated platforms have terrain following radar uh, we don't have a radar in, in, in this attack helicopter. So you're counting on your, your pre-flight preparation. You're counting on knowing the route you're flying. Um, you're counting on knowing where all your uh, man-made obstacles are and natural obstacles are. So it's really incumbent upon the pilots
0: uh, in their pre-flight planning to, to be aware of that. Okay, I got it. So you're doing a lot of pre-preparation to understand, okay, this is my route, and then this is where there's maybe a mountain over here, or a hill over here, or a building over here. So you know ahead of time what what might be coming. Absolutely. I, I would say, particularly for,
1: well, initially for flying combat missions, you, your, your preparation could have been days and days and days. In the brief, I mean, normally it's about a two-hour brief, and in our case, we can fly for about two hours, and you come back and you debrief it for as long as you need to to capture all your lessons learned. And then, uh, you know, wash, rinse, repeat you know, as it goes. And you, you, you try to get better on each, each evolution. Uh, you try to learn the things that are important to brief, not to brief in each, each environment you fly in has its own specific challenges. Like there's certain things we just didn't worry ourselves with uh, there. But then, you know, early on weather, no moon. Uh, and of course we spent the majority of our time worrying about a pretty pretty agile enemy
0: yeah i that reminds me I remember the story um when they got bin Laden didn't they train like the the because the walls were different than what they trained like didn't didn't one of the helicopters actually crash land in that mission
1: it did you know that's a really uh you know that's
0: a uh, such a classified mission but
1: I know the uh the army were putting in the uh, the special operators in a uh highly modified Blackhawk h60 that had some, um, you build angles and so it has a lower radar cross, you know, radar can see helicopters, but has a lower radar cross section, probably had ways to suppress the motors. And I And I think just by cool happenstance, it, it had a malfunction. I don't think the pilots, these pilots who were flying them are, um, they're from the 160th Special Operation Aviation Regiment in the army. Um, the best pilots in the world. I mean, I'd love to say I was you know <laughs> could fly at their level. Those are the best helicopter pilots in the world. And uh, I think it was a malfunction in that aircraft, and they you know, ended up crashing in the in the, uh, in, in the whatever you call it, that courtyard and they had to destroy it in, uh, in place there. But yeah, I've looked for that story. you know, I'm waiting to hear more about the helicopter, and I, you know it's one of those you don't really hear more about it because we all we like we like we like cool things and uh, that was a pretty, pretty interesting part of that mission.
0: Yeah, we had many years ago on the podcast we had Rob O'Neill on, and he talked about that mission. Um, and he mentioned that the helicopter pilot actually saved their life because of how, you know, he had to crash land it in a way that didn't just just completely destroy everything, but it was some sort of crash landing, I believe. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, but
1: like I said, those those 160th pilots, I mean, they're they're the best helicopter pilots in the world. They simply are,
0: you know. Yeah. And is it true that they have to destroy it once it's, if if you, if you can't, if it's broken and you can't get it out of there, you actually have to destroy it so that like none of the technology can be stolen. Do you you know anything about that? I don't know about that specific case, but certainly in the past, we've had aircraft that have gone down and they'll,
1: uh, they'll find a way to, they'll find a way to bring demo teams in, or if they have to, they'll bring in fixed wing aircraft and they'll bomb it. So, cause you got classified radios on there. You have other classified equipment. And you have technology like real technology that, whether it's anti-missile, anti-radar missile, anti-heat-seeking missile, other technologies, just don't want uh, uh, any enemy to have easy access to.
0: Yeah, got you, got you. So, uh, how long were you in the Middle East? So, uh, so in this case, the war. I did three tours
1: uh, in Iraq. I did the uh, tour in two thousand and three. Then came back again. Uh, up in the Sunni Triangle in 2004, and then went back there again in
0: 2005. Gotcha. you, gotcha. you. And and what were you doing after you were in the Middle East? You were in the military for several more years. What were you doing after that? So kind of a natural progression uh,
1: in in my case, in in our in my services, I left in I left command as a lieutenant colonel in 2006. We got home from Iraq, and then I went off to the War College. And that's, um, a natural progression. Um, you go to the war college, you spend a year. Um, in, in my case, it was a fantastic year. You get to reconnect with old friends. You get to spend time with your family. You have to move again, but that's just what happens. Uh, and, uh, and you get a chance to study and think and think of, you know, a lot of, you're preparing yourself really for your next, your next job. And so, um, after that I went up and I served on the staff of the chairman of the joint chiefs. Uh, and that is, uh, Everyone thinks, oh, the Pentagon. You know, it's such a grind. And you never want to go there, and it, it it is a grind, and it's a lot of work. But uh, again, the people you work, I, you know, you get to work with some amazing people, and so you have access to see the, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, right? You, you know, all the service chiefs are in the building, and get a chance to interact with them. For me, at a pretty at a lower level, but you get to see how they work with their staffs. Get to see how the, the Chairman works with the Secretary of Defense, and how the Secretary. So you learn all these kind of inner workings of the of the military, and and through that of, of the government so very educational for me um, I enjoyed my time up there I, I enjoys a stretch but I, I enjoyed it because you learned a lot I didn't enjoy it you know you don't enjoy the commute you, you know you don't enjoy the long hours you don't enjoy being stuck in DC the I, you know i-95 traffic you don't enjoy that part but um, you do enjoy the fact that you're getting professionally you're growing
0: yeah uh, what kind of stuff uh, I'm sure a lot of this is probably confidential but can you share like what kind of stuff were you learning when you were there? You really
1: learn everything. I mean, so I I was in a very specific directorate um, and and my work was uh, really NATO focused. So it was really NATO focused with the alliance, um, how we can work better and more align our capabilities. And so I got to do a fair amount of travel to NATO countries um, and and work with them. But you learn everything, how the intelligence uh, is gathered and work. you, You understand better operations, how all the military services are synced. Um, And then how the combatant commanders, you know, which all over the geographic combatant commanders use the forces, you learn about the logistics and the communications and the acquisition sides of it so you get a taste of everything. Um, But where I worked I was really focused on um, how we improve our relationships, how we improve the doctrine,
0: the training uh, with with our within our allies, particularly in NATO this is another question that I don't know if you'll be allowed to answer, but as far as like how we gather intelligence and that kind of thing, are, is our government's like ability just way more advanced than like what the average person would assume? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: You know, so I, you know, I had a, a, I had a top secret clearance and but you know the, the methods and the means uh, of intelligence gathering is you know, that's so compartmentalized. It's so far above me. Um, I, I really don't know. I mean, uh, you know, it's impressive to understand how we have drones flying, our Predators, and all those all those types of assets. Uh, it's, it's impressive to see satellite imagery and and the imagery we have from our intelligence gathering. You know, fixed wing plat- platforms we have out there. Uh, but the specifics, like I said, the means and the methods, really, I. I don't know any more than your average American does, right? Because they, those people are, that, that's their job. That's their life. Um, yeah. And then, you know, and then all the ground intelligence, again, that's a whole separate function, um, whether it's through um, DOD means or it's through other means.
0: So um, I have another helicopter question. Sure. Have you, how many times, would you say you've flown like hundreds of times?
1: Oh, I mean, I would thousands thousands, and thousands of times oh yeah so I yeah so um I don't I don't have a count but I, I you know had a couple of four thousand hours when I retired and most all of that was in helicopters um and so you don't really know but um you, you do you get a lot of reps and sets and training a lot of reps and sets and training um but you know the really the I tell people it's like it's like two separate careers you have there's your as your administrative flying, all the building blocks, you learn how to navigate and communicate and shoot. Um, and then there's combat flying, which is fundamentally decision-making and understanding the environment. It's, that's the art of it. The science is being taught how to fly it and fly it effectively um, and employ it to a certain extent. But then the art is really, is your decision-making, right? Decisions are just inherently bare weight. And uh, when you're flying, you're not just making decisions for yourself, you're making decisions for your wingman, you're making decisions for commanders on the ground that, that, that affect them. So very, there's a, there's a, there's a seriousness to it all. Um, but the numbers of times you fly, you know, it just, it, it just builds, particularly overseas where you'd fly. You Normally we'd have a, a long day flying back home would be four hours. You have to get two sorties. You go back out twice. You know, I remember the second night coming back and I was telling my skipper, I said, Hey boss, I just, I just flew over 13 hours. And per hour, our guidance, our manuals, we can only fly six and a half hours. That's all you can fly in a day. Um, you, can, you know, there's, there's some exceptions to that. So, you know, our squadron through our, you know, our higher headquarters had to put waivers in immediately. Like, I, you, we're not going to stop flying. And so that's another thing we we, we all learned as a team was that um, uh, the, the effects of fatigue, right? So, we began, we began tremendously fatigued after days where you're flying 12, 13, 14 hours, then you're drinking some really hot water and you're laying down a cot in the sun because I was a night guy trying to get some sleep. And then uh, you get up and you go do it again. So um, there's a cumulative uh, level of fatigue that happens. You know, you can, any, you, you and I can gut through anything for a week or 10 days, but when it starts to go months, uh, it really begins to, you know, impact you.
0: Yeah, that could have uh, the fatigue, lack of sleep and rest can have like very severe physical and psychological effects. It does, you know, and so I think,
1: you know, one, one thing that really has helped, helped me was I did my, I did my uh, first deployment, you come back and you kind of process what's happening, um, but then you go right back. So you, you don't have like, that was your one snapshot in time of what, what, what that war looked like. So you, you had a chance to, you you're back in it again. So you have a chance to answer some of your own questions that you have, and you talk with your fellow you know, Marines and, you know, you, so it's, it, it's, I think it's that, that part of it's helpful. Um One thing I saw was just amazing. I'm talking about the army again, giving them more kudos. They'd go on, you know, 14 month deployments, you know, 14 months deployments. And so you talk to pilots, I've done a couple of podcasts with, uh with retired army guys and they're great. And they're like, you know, they go be gone for four, they'd be flying 900, a thousand hours in a year, which is, that's a career's worth of you know, that's a career's worth of flying you're doing in a deployment and then coming home and refitting and doing that again. And we recorded seven month deployments kind of at the squadron level. The uh, bigger units would stay longer. But uh, you know, it was always uh, as, as hard as I think I would be working. And I never really believed I was, working, but I knew I was working hard. Um, you don't have to look far to realize there's a lot of people working a lot harder than you are. And it's, you know, it's, it's motivating and it's, it's, you know, kind of inspirational
0: in itself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So with – this is a a kind of bizarre question for you. Um, With thousands of hours in the air, have you ever seen anything that you just have – you just cannot explain that? Like anything that you saw that you're like, what the hell was that?
1: You know I, I no, I, I haven't seen any UFOs, um, you know. <laughs> so I think that, that, one Navy F-A, that One Navy F-18 guy has got the, 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 the piece on that. Um, you know, I had an experience, um, and it goes to a bigger, uh, uh, longer day that I had. It was just a day that I'd never experienced. And, um, you know, you, you learn to, you know, I call it you know, kind of leading in ambiguity. Um, and it's, it's hard because you do so many t- things for the first time. Right. And there's no playbook for it. There's no manual to teach you how to do it. This is kind of what I was talking about, where you you know, just you just have to learn and you don't give up and you keep flying. I'd flown in. I was uh, flying north, uh, going into Baghdad. This is the first of April. And I'd landed at a, a, a forward arming and refueling point. There was these little mini convoys that the Marine Corps put, you know, right behind or sometimes ahead uh, of the of our units. And they had gasoline and ordnance for us. It was really important. And they had mechanics there, really important. So little things wrong with the helicopter, they could tune up. And I landed this one place and it was chalky. We're the first people to land there. Chalky, chalky dust. And you really couldn't see anything. And both my wingman and I land and and uh, we're getting ready to take off. And my wingman says, hey, I uh, i can't start my number two engine. We normally shut one engine down. We're putting gas in. And I've got to make that choice. I got to leave them. You know, I, I, I'm going to go fly. I'm going to link up with another two helicopters from my squadron, and we're going to go, we're going to go fight the fight. And so tough, tough decision, but there's security there. And, you know, I report uh, everything I should. So anyway, I go to take off and we take off and I can't see anything, but it's basically you're trusting your instruments and you just got to push the nose forward and you'll fly through it and you'll just start flying. And my, my copilot's like, Hey, there's a truck in front of us. You need to climb. And so I just pull power. And before I could know it, um, Lose tail rotor authority, which means your tail rotor is countering the torque from, from the main rotor and it can only take so much. So the tail boom and the tail rotor just comes flying over my left shoulder. And we do a full 360 in the air and, and we do another 360. And, and my copilot, you know, later on, my wingman says, you yeah, know, we are just waiting for the explosion. I'd never had that happen to me before. So we're, we're, we're super heavy. We don't have enough power. We got to get, we got to keep flying. And so my copilot's telling me just take the power, you know, power out, power out. And I'm like, i don't have time to communicate i'm like dude i'm not taking power out so i can fly wings level and we're spinning but i was waiting to get above the cloud dust so we're spinning 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 we finally get above the cloud dust and i finally get a way to take power out and the aircraft slowly writes itself and you know you know we don't talk for the next 10 minutes so i'd never seen that before it wasn't a ufo but it was another example of me trying to kill my co-pilot you know he did nothing wrong (laughs) and uh you know, it, it's it's it just lessons learned. You know, we place we'd never been. We were at our max. we were probably over our max gross weight the helicopter can take because we had full load of ordnance. We had full load of fuel. I should have known better. I should have probably walked in front of me 100 yards, but you couldn't see 100 yards in front of you. We just assumed there was nothing in front of us. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's as close as I get. I'll get to a UFO. I think. Wow. So that was a mechanical issue that caused you to basically so, going to 360s aerodynamic issues so i'm asking the aircraft i'm asking my tail rotor to you know the tail rotor pushes you sideways to counter the torque of the main rotor i'm asking that tail rotor to do more than it can do it can't push that hard um so what you have to do is you got to get forward airspeed and then forward airspeed lets that the the torque demand decreases once you get flying so that's as best as an econ major can explain. You might have to talk to an aerodynamics engineer.
0: <laughs> that, engineer you know? that sounds terrifying. I'm surprised that neither of you like lost your lunch during that experience. We, uh, yeah, you know, we didn't have time. I mean, I just say it like we're, we, uh, we,
1: we flew over and, uh, you know, it, it was a crazy night. We flew over to meet up with my, my executive officer at the time. We found where they were. And as we landed, we got mortared. Uh, you know, Marines are getting wounded and it just, it was a long, long night. Um, but you know,
0: we just, uh, you know, we persevered and we just pressed through that one. And so, okay. So during the 360 situation, he said there was a truck ahead of you that you had to avoid. What what was that? That's what he said. That's what I heard him. He's like,
1: Hey, there's a truck in front of us. I'm like, what? There's a truck. You got to climb. And I'm like, like now he's like, now, normally if i just push the nose over it's like an aircraft taking off getting enough speed you'll we call it translational lift you'll the helicopter almost acts like an aircraft you know the, the rotor acts like a wing and you take off i just didn't have enough speed and he i had to climb now so i just pulled power and i pulled more power than the tail rotor could counter and so you spin the main so rotor,
0: rotor get you spinning you were actually this may be a dumb question, so I'm sorry, but you were just, you were low enough to the ground that you were almost going to hit a, like a parked vehicle or is the truck like an enemy who's going to shoot at you?
1: I never knew what it was. You know, I, it could have been a, oh, it's, this was an abandoned Iraqi airfield um, that the, we just put our group in there. So I didn't know what it was. I never saw it. Um, I just knew there's an obstacle in front of me. I didn't want to smash into. So yeah, we spun and spun till probably got to 50, maybe 75 feet. And we got above the cloud dust. The, or the, the, the you know, the cloud that was created by all the dust. And uh, once you take enough power out and kind of what we do is you pick the power out, you push the nose of the helicopter forward, it'll write itself. It'll fly into the relative wind and uh, it starts to fly more like an airplane. Um, yeah, that was sporty. It was, you know, event number two, you know, me, <laughs> salty major trying to kill a young captain, you know, and, uh, but uh, you learn from it. You just, you know, nothing you can do about it. You know,
0: didn't mean to do it. Um, yeah sporty that is a interesting way to describe that <laughs> <laughs> wow um so can you tell us a little bit about your book it's uh ghosts of baghdad um when did you write it and what inspired you to write it and can you tell like a little bit what's it about sure um a, a blue angel flying over my house
1: right now you can probably hear it in the background um, are, you, are you
0: are you close to like dc or annapolis
1: i live in i live in pensacola florida gotcha yeah yeah so it's the
0: uh, home of the blues i think i was just a
1: f-18 flying by um uh, so the book you know it was it, it was in my brain um i took a lot of notes on that deployment in other deployments um second book coming out later this year early next year um you know i really wanted to tell our story i want to tell our collective story and um uh, you know, when you when you look at the book, when you read the book, you realize it's it's not about me saying I, you know, look at me. It's uh, it's seen through my lens. It's told through my voice, uh, but it's it's all of our it's all of our stories. Right. It could be your neighbor. It could have been your brother, your sister, your father. So it's it tells a story. And, and these are Marines. These are people from all over the country, all over the world and stories that needed to be told. Um, so that was my motivation. And selfishly, what I liked was I got a chance to reconnect with old friends, whether it was an old, uh, you know, retired colonel, general, sergeant. Uh, it was just great reconnecting with them. And it was also amazing to understand their perspectives of things, um, what they saw and what I saw. And uh, and I took those into account. But, you know, it's interesting. I can only I can only tell a story about what I see. And so, you know, it, there's a lot of motivations. I think you know. Again, it's it's a story that needs to be told. It doesn't need to be a story that's told in 25 more years and some lionized version of the past, right? It's it's what happened to this generation of aviators, right? It's not another. I, I love them. I love all the good you know good Spielberg movies on Second World War and you know Tom Hay. Those are they're they're legendary. Um, but um, this is real. These these people are your neighbors now. These you know, these are young men and women that were asked to do incredible things. Um, it, it's almost hard sometimes to put yourself back into a post-9/11 world. It's 18 months after 9/11. Uh, views were dramatically different about what we think is right and what, in hindsight, people think is right and wrong, and that's for historians to debate. And you know, those and you know, live in the social sciences to debate. That's not to me. Um, but I was proud to write it. You know, I was proud to re- represent a generation to write it and tell our collective story, um, and it lets you. St- I think for most readers, let lets you step into a place you've never been before. Uh, you open the door, take a step into a attack helicopter. You close the canopy, and you get to see it for what it is. And like I said, I, I don't. It's unvarnished. I'm, you know, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm the most flawed character in the book, and it's me telling me exactly, telling you exactly what happened. Right. So, trying to kill myself in my wingman on the opening night, you know, just because I'm not good enough at that time. I just got to get better. Um, and, yeah. Ghosts of Baghdad. Right. I, so I, I, we'd all seen ghosts, right. I talk about, you know, and when you're a kid, what makes you sprint home from your neighbor's house at night? You don't know something's out there. You just don't know what it is. You know, it's going to get you and you got to run. <laughs> and So as time went on, these, these events began to unfold. I, 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 would tell you, honestly, I started to get that feeling. I started to get a feeling of dread um, sinking feeling kind of like a, you know, like a, like a, you know, blanket on you. Um, I felt like someone was chasing us and uh, there's nothing you can do about it. It's irrational. Um, and you just, you fight through it and you try to compartmentalize and ghost gets a vote. And, you know, we, we lose more aircraft, right. We'd still lose more aircraft, more people would be killed. And it's, you f- it's a real living and breathing, uh, breathing thing out there that's in my mind best describes, um, you know, what we went through collectively. So um, yeah, it's, Less than 30 days, you know, you strap in and then, uh, you know, the book ends and we we're, we're up in uh, Saddam's hometown of Tikrit, um, which is the, the one, the top corner, the northeast corner of the Sunni triangle, as they would become known. So yeah, that was my motivation for writing it. That's my perspective on it. Um, and that's uh, what I think uh, hopefully tells a, tells a compelling story.
0: So is it, is it, it's your true story. It's about you. It's not a fiction, right? It's yours. Is it like a collection? Yeah. It's your memoir. Okay. Absolutely. Right. So, yep. Um, Does it take, does it take take the reader through like various missions that you did sort of uh, in the early two thousands in the middle East? It, it, it takes you from the opening night of operation
1: Iraqi freedom one to what I thought was the last night of real fighting which is the second week of April. Um, when we had already gone through Baghdad and we're up in Tikrit. And so takes you from the opening night and I close it off pretty much, um, 23 days later. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're with me. You, you're, you're in, you're in the opening night. You're flying in Basra. You're meeting chemo- the troops of chemical Ali. You're flying in Nazaria. You're flying in Baghdad outside of Baghdad. Um, Getting to meet guys on the ground, friends of mine that I, you know, met that were in tanks, light armored vehicles, they were infantry officers. You get a little their perspective of what we were doing for them, or in some cases, not doing for them. And so that's it. It's it's I try to I try to inform the reader without being um, distracting, right? So certain things I thought were important. Um, that's you know, you read a not comparing myself to any of these people, clearly. You read a Tom Clancy now, you know, sometimes he can describe a nuclear reactor or, or the propulsion of a, uh, or, or the catapult on an aircraft carrier to such, you know, take four, four, you know, four or five paragraphs. I'm sorry, paragraphs, four or five chapters in describing that. Um, there's other writers, uh, fiction writers, you know, that will simply, like a Grisham book, he just uses law. He's an attorney, but just uses law as the backdrop. And it, it's a vehicle for him to tell stories. And, and so uh, clearly, I'm neither of those. But what I wanted to do was be able to inform the reader, let them know this is what type of ship we're on, this is how we're configured, this is kind of how daily operations happen on a ship, and very briefly, um, what is a Hellfire missile? What guides it? You know, what is a 20 millimeter gun? What's an M1A1 tank? Within reason, right? So, without being distracting, but keep the story pressing. So when they leave, they, I've not only taken them on a journey, but they've, they have an understanding of, you know, hey, this is what a Marine Corps does. This is what this is what a Marine Corps does for our country
0: that must've been a very intense 23 days. Um, I'm curious, did the, did those 23 days feel like forever? Did it feel like a year?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. Um, in some ways it did. There was, um, you know, it, it, it snapped you into a new normal so quickly. Um, and there was no, I talk about expectations. I sometimes talk to folks and like for us, Expectations uh, are the kryptonite to any aviator. You know, expectations mean we have we've thought through how this event or this flight or this single mission will end, and that's just so dangerous. It's a it's a level of complacency which is just deadly. And so every day was new, every day was different. We try to manage, um, you know, any expectations of what was happening, um, but it. Unlike further tours that I would do there, what made it. I think added stress to everyone was uh there was no end in sight right so future ones you show up you and i show up and it's like hey great we're coming we're gonna be there for six months seven months whatever it's going to be we have a start date we have an end date you and i can mark start marking calendar days right it's just good people do that we had no clue um and then after we went into the southern town of nazaria i mean boy, you know the army went in first that was the famous jessica lynch um convoy the 507th maintenance company and they got turned around and they got ambushed. we sent Marines in there and they got ambushed and we're like, oh this is this is a different war than we thought it was going to be. Um, and so that that's when we all yeah, it's a big sandstorm hits there's all these little uh, setbacks that we just had to keep overcoming and overcoming and we just were waiting for the next one to happen. So you know what way that again make it a little more stressful than you know further deployments was just not knowing when it was going to end. You know, not you just never know what the next day is. There's no mature battle space you're operating in. Every day is a brand new day for you.
0: I um I like to collect quotes from my guests. And mm. you you said a really good one. That's complacency is deadly. I think that's I it's really good. I'm gonna put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um so you mentioned that you, you said that this war is different than we thought. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like how, how did, how was it expected to be versus like, what was different than what, what people thought it was going to be? Yeah. So from, from my cockpit, you know, we'd been briefed, um,
1: before we even went over the first night, there was, uh, there was thousands of, you know, air to air, uh, triple a, you know, any aircraft artillery fired, there was thousands of missiles being shot, radar emitters flying, um, and you know, we'd put putting our gas masks on, we're running into, into these tunnels just right right south of the Iraqi border as they shot ballistic missiles from the you know from Iraq down trying to hit our ships and our bases. Um, but beyond that, I mean, we were looking at 400,000 regular, you know, Iraqi troops. That's that's five corps, sixteen divisions. Then we had their Special Republican Guard, another seventy five thousand. As you get closer to Baghdad, right? So that was those seventy five thousand broken into six, you know, six divisions, all with much more uh, modern weapon systems Then when in Baghdad. There was this quote: "Special Republican Guard." Right? There was the fifteen thousand of Saddam's elite, you know, the uh, the best of the best there to prevent coups and do all the other things they do. So we're looking at this massive force. They clearly outnumbered our force. and expectations, like, they're, they're deadly. They're like, well, just you're going to be fighting maybe the second-tier armies down there. They're, they're not Sunnis. They're mostly Shia and they're conscripts. They're probably going to run away from their weapons and not care. No, that happened. And there were also, you know, there was, you know, some Iraqi company commanders leading their 200 men who were incredibly motivated, incredibly dedicated, who were going to fight and fight and fight and fight. So uh, you treated every threat as if it was the most capable force you're going against otherwise you know, you put yourself and your crews, you know, in peril. You simply do. So that's what I mean. What it didn't un, uh, un, un kind of unravel. It unraveled here and there in places, but it didn't go as people maybe thought it would go. Right. The first, the first Gulf War. You know, mass surrenders. You name it. It all happened. The bombing campaign and uh, those troops stuck in Kuwait in southern um, uh, Saudi Arabia, then through Kuwait. Up to the border, you know, they 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 surrendered by the hundreds of thousands, um, and they you know we we didn't know, but that was in the back of our mind. These folks maybe they're going to surrender early, and there was a lot of surrendering, like I said. But there were hotbeds, um, like the city of Basra, where the Brits were, where um, famous chemical Ali Saddam Hussein's, you know, first it was his first cousin. He'd use chemicals against the Kurds and used chemicals against the Iranians. He'd run the secret police. Uh, and he was, uh, running that force in Basra. So it was a pocket that we bypassed, uh, but it was a place we'd have to go back when they had some, you know, pretty well-trained troops there.
0: Did you say it was his nickname, Chemical Ali? That was his nickname,
1: Chemical Ali. Uh, Uh, Ali, yeah. So if you look up Chemical Ali, you pop him up. It's Ali. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, there's a famous, there's a famous scene that, uh, Saddam Hussein filmed back when he took power um i believe in 79 i gotta look when that was um where he has all this it's a it's a big auditorium filled with politicians and uh chemical ali his cousins behind him who were in the secret police that's where they just started calling out names and those folks were just taken out and you know never to be seen some to be seen again the most not to be seen again it's all part of you know it's dictator handbook 101 right so we, it's the the, the the, the absolute, you know, the, the, the threats of being, um uh, you know, whacked by your leader, you know. So, pardon me for one second. I'm gonna let this dog. You let your dog out? Big white Swiss Shepherd. This might one of my kids' dogs. <laughs> he, he started. I wonder why I could hear the jets. My door's open. He wanted to go outside the backyard, so I gotta let him out. Nice, nice. So, nice. <laughs> so is it, you got a big, you got a big, huge dog it's um it's pretty big dog you know it's my youngest daughters and so Mike we had a you know unfortunately lost our dog recently but um uh, both my daughters have a couple cool I got
0: three daughters but they all have pretty cool dogs so they're allowed to stay here (laughs) they want so absolutely amazing so um yeah the dictator just using that fear as a tactic I guess um So coming up closer to like today or modern, modern day, you know, post nine 11 was a long time ago. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned how we, there was even like a different mindset back then, because sometimes I watch like even like old TV episodes from like, you know, early two thousands and you can, I can at least really get a sense of how people's mindset was really different. Um, But I guess we'll, see what the historians say about it um we got out of the middle east supposedly um a year or two ago and i remember watching the news with the people hanging off the airplane and and begging us not to go and i was just like really there's just so much suffering and i'm I'm curious can you share any opinion about how we got out of there yes so
1: how we left afghanistan i i It's a national, it's a national disgrace. I mean, it's a tragedy. Um, We can divest ourselves from our, uh, that support, direct support of the war, but we promised those people, we looked them in the eye and we promised them, you know, you can count on us. We promised you, right? Your daughters will actually get to leave the house. They can, your daughters will actually be educated. Uh, We're going to try to have some levels of services and invest in infrastructure and water and electricity and education, all the things that scare any dictator, all the things that scare any oppressive religion. They don't want anyone. That's what they you know. That's why they you whack lawyers, you whack teachers, uh, you you suppress women, you you suppress more than half your population. You write things in the law that suppresses them and uh, any chance for them to grow. Um, so it was it was tragic. I mean, there was so many other ways we could have found to divest ourselves from Afghanistan and divest ourselves. Uh, Mean a political solution. The Taliban had to be reasoned with at some point. They were. Now we did. We, we did kill so many Taliban that probably a lot of the pragma, pragmatic leaders were gone. But there was the potential of a political solution and to find a way for Afghanistan to flourish as it should, and their people to flourish. And not turn our backs uh, on people that we told could trust. We could trust them. You know, and they could trust us. It's just.
0: It's disheartening. Yeah, I was, I, I'm very considered, I consider myself a very apolitical person, but I was really heartbroken. Just, I remember, and I don't even watch much news on TV, but I remember seeing that footage of the people just like clinging to the airplane, begging us not to go. And I was just really heartbroken by that and seeing that suffering. And I, uh, I had a veteran on a few weeks ago who talked about um, he knew people that were calling, you know, people that were locals to that area that worked with us and they were calling their contact their American contacts just begging us, please don't leave us and please help us. And uh, we just just left them. So it's really devastating and sad, and there's there's really no winners in that situation in my opinion. No, it's it's there's nothing. I mean, you got the guilt of those of
1: us who served in Afghanistan. Uh, but clearly, I'm you know uh, my my level of effort in Afghanistan was as a staff guy, and it was limited. So it's not. Um, there's so many other folks who gave so much uh, and built those relationships, and I couldn't imagine having those types of phone calls. And those stories are still being told. And I know there's and there's still efforts to get folks out, uh, but you know it. The, the the you know the die was cast, and this administration so that's how we're going to do that um and it's it's on them it's on it's their legacy you know it's their legacy our legacy those that serve their legacy they gotta you know they put their chin up high and they know they serve with honor and distinction and the administration has to that's going to be their legacy uh, when it's written so
0: yeah and you know speaking of this administration and maybe you can provide some of your i would consider your expert opinion um and myself is complete like i know very very little about how all this works but i just know sort of like the surface level what i hear on the news which i even try to avoid news because i find it really um stressful and biased but um you know i remember 2017 through 2020 being told like we're in danger and then war is going to break out and world war three is going to come and now suddenly here we are with the next administration, and I feel like uh, there's more war. So do you have any opinion on that or am, am I misunderstanding what's going on? Yeah, you know I, th- I think um, yeah, talking
1: about being able I'm you know I'm, I'm we're all political in some sense. Um, but it's just it's been very difficult, right? It's very difficult when you operate from a position of weakness particularly in the Middle East where they, under, people, they understand a the gun on the face. It's, it's very, it's primitive in so many ways, right? We, um, we don't have the luxury of, they haven't had the luxury of sitting on a U.S. campus and studying philosophy and history and understanding how to be pragmatic. They don't, that, it, doesn't, it doesn't work, right? And we also have a level of immaturity when I look at college campuses of understanding they hate you for who you are. You, they'll never sit down with you and talk with you ever. They, they hate you for who you are, and they want to kill you. And it's not irrational to them; it's perfectly rational, it's perfectly logical, and you have to just accept that. And to do otherwise is, is at your own peril, right? It's you know, you know, they say weaponless dreamers die at the hands of bad men all the time. It happens throughout history. Roll it back to, you know, just roll back, just I mean, just go back. I, I listen to a lot of history. I read a lot of history. Um, just reading about you know, the fall of the city of Petra and all, you know, it's just amazing about uh, trade routes, but it's all about competition competition for wealth, competition for resources, competition for populations that provide them that wealth and resources. So, the Middle East is no different right now. Uh, it's the Iranians, it's a proxy. They're the proxy wars they funded and trained and uh, helped plan what Hamas did on October 7th to the Israelis. It's unconscionable what they did. It was a massacre and they targeted civilians and children and people and families. They per- pot- could no way ever defend themselves. It's Hezbollah who was trained and again equipped by the Iranians. We saw the attack on tower 22 recently that killed three Americans, right uh, by the Islamic resistance of Iraq, another another force trained by the the IRGC, the Islamic Republic the Islamic you know, Revolutionary Guard Corps of the Iranians. Specifically, they call them their Quds forces uh, or their special forces. So their fingerprints are all over that. Uh, and we look at what's happened with the Houthis, right? The Houthis started off as a political movement with the brother Hussein. Abdul, his younger brother, now runs it after he was assassinated. But, you know, they're taking on international shipping. They're trying to shut down international shipping lanes. And on the ground with them are Iranian forces with Iranian missiles. Um, those small organizations, they, they can't build, fly, maintain uh, very advanced drone systems, like the one that was used in Tower 20, it's, it is it is the Iranians, right? So it's the Iranians. And so they they perceive weakness, right? They, they perceive weakness. And so that's what's been really difficult in the Middle East side. You know, we could talk about Russia and Ukraine or other hot spots, But I mean, right now, it's it, it's those proxies have to be isolated. Um, and we are all, at least I am, I'm very sympathetic to Palestinians. I mean, those Palestinian people have done nothing Wrong. I mean, they really haven't. The people that their government, their elected government, Hamas, you know, has squandered billions and billions. Where's the infrastructure? Where's the electrical grids? Where's water? Where's food? Where was where was an after plan? Where was your after you did this attack on the Israelis? Did you think nothing was going to happen? Except you want to use your own people as human shields. We know that, right? So that's that's a common occurrence for them. But you know, you know where's the where's the international outcry on that, right? Um, so it's it's complex. It's a very very tense world right now i would agree with you
0: yeah and i think there's unfortunately a lot of suffering on on both sides you know as in, in the west i feel like sometimes we sometimes are just given one side or the other and i i think there's suffering on both sides and i'm wondering do you see any way that this kind of scales back around the world or do you think is it just, is war just the way the world is going to be? Or is there a way, is there, do we have some kind of hope? I, I certainly hope
1: so. I mean, I, I I believe so. I mean, I just wrote a piece on, uh, on proxies and, you know, I kind of focused a little bit on the Houthis and I got to find out what they, there's got to be a political solution for them. Like their, their course right now is it's, they're in a death spiral. If they don't know it, they may not know it, but they're in a death spiral. Um, they, they have to, solve the problem internally with the Yemeni government. They have to solve it internally with the Saudis. Um, they open up another front on the internationals uh, when you're firing ballistic missiles at shipping and you're trying to hit, uh, they're a loose cannon. They just fired on an, on an Israeli, I'm sorry, on an Iranian supply ship coming in from Brazil a couple of days ago. And so they're gonna open a third front against the US. That's, that's a recipe for death and destruction. And you hate to see it happen, right? You don't. That doesn't have to happen. So how do you get them to the table to say, listen, this is not going to get you anywhere you want to go. It's not going to get you anywhere you want to go. And they're radical. You read the Houthis, their, their charter is death to, you know, death to you know, you know standard God is great, you know, death to Israel, death to Jews, death to America. And there's a couple of people, they, you know, they're same with Hamas, death to America, death to Israeli, death to the Jews. They want the land back. It's just what they preach. So it's difficult, but there has to be some type of political solution for it. You can't be in a persistent state of, not just conflict, but active war. Um, and the blowback on the Israelis is, is so unfair. Um, if anyone is left out or, or, or reached out with an olive branch more than the Israelis, I'd love to know who that is. Um, up and down the border, there's Israeli and uh, Palestinian and other Muslim neighborhoods, they're just intertwined with the culture where they live in harmony, you know, just they have different religions, but they live in harmony, and, and, the, and that's been in great part to the Israelis. Uh, but they've been pounded on since nineteen you know forty eight hard, um, and so I uh, think that there are somehow that the, somehow the Palestinians of the Palestinians are the victims, are the victims of Hamas, um, which is you know very much different than saying you know, the Israelis are the aggressor and they they need to they need to stop and begin rebuilding. In this case, the Gaza the Gaza Strip, so. Yeah, not not an easy one. There's been a lot of great minds trying to solve this problem for for millennia, and I don't know that there's going to be a short answer. But um, it would be great, um, really, if uh, we could ensure the proxies of Iran are put back in their place, and then go back and specifically look at the Israeli uh, Hezbollah Hamas issues. Which just now, it's it really is a it's it's a, it is a humanitarian disaster, um, but. It's a disaster that could have been avoided.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that we can find a political so- solution sooner than later. Um, and thank you for sharing your uh, your opinions on this. Um, so, you mentioned we'll change, change. We'll pivot a little bit. You mentioned you're working on another book. Um, can you talk about a little bit about your next book, or is that all kind of? under wraps right now or no. So, um, right now we've got
1: uh ghost of Baghdad has really been our focus. I'm trying to get that, uh, bubble wrapped and shipped, uh, um, shipped out West, the folks in, uh, in Hollywood to see what they can do with that for us. Um, and get, then get uh, me, a, I'll have
0: to, I'll ask your people for a copy. Cause I don't think I have one yet, but oh, I'm out absolutely. here. I'm out here in Hollywood. So we'll see what we can do.
1: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I would love any help. I'm out in California.
0: starting start next week. Uh, for some
1: other work. But um, yeah, the next book is called Devil in the Triangle and it picks up, uh, it picks up in the uh, summer or spring of 2004 um, when I go back uh, for my second tour. Um, and it's amazing how much has changed in a very short period of time. Um, we're now flying out of uh, this small Iraqi air base called Al Takatam that's right in between the flashpoint cities of Fallujah and Ramadi and only about a 20 minute flight, uh, into Baghdad. And so it, it, uh, it picks up there and it'll, it'll carry you, carry you th- through that. And we've, uh, you know, we get some wins. We have some, we have some tremendous losses from a very personal side of it. Um, and so it we'll kind of expand the aperture a little bit, um, uh, get to understand more, a little more of the culture, um, of what I'm trying to get across. And then we'll do that for deployment in 2004 in uh, and we'll wrap it up uh, after the deployment in two thousand and five. So that'll be the last. Uh, that'll be the last uh, memoir I'm going to write. And then uh, you know, the plan is to um, is to turn to some uh, some writing about my experiences in Afghanistan. Really, kind of from a novel side, but a historical based. And so that's that's the intent there. So yeah, got some plans. So we're trying to get through that.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Well, I look forward to it. I forgot to ask. Speaking of your books and your memoirs. Um, is it true that there is, uh, in Ghosts of Baghdad, there's a scene about uh, collecting souvenirs? Can you tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. thank you for bringing that up. No, so, uh, yeah,
1: you know, I made I, you know, I, I, some, some leadership lessons not to follow. Uh, I definitely have a few in there. So as we began to move north and really the heavy, um, some of the most heavy, the fighting we knew was was, it had slowed um, your mind wanders, right? You know, when they say uh, idle time, idle hands do the devil's work, right? So um, first time we were headed up and uh, going north to the, the the city of Tikrit. And we looked down in uh, my Dash 3, my third aircraft, which was a Huey. said, hey, sir, you see that? You see that? Uh, oh, I don't know what he called it. You know, see that target down there off our right wing? And I looked down and I, I can't see anything except a big flagpole, what was a military outpost, which is abandoned on top of that flagpole is a big Iraqi flag flying. And so I'm like, hey, I'm like, all right, you're going to go get that high value target. So, you know, I immediately regretted the decision. And, you know, the Huey just kind of, you know, rolls into a heavy angle of bank and they, they're, they're hovering right next to this flagpole and uh, the wind's blowing. I'm oh like, God, God, if anything happens to this Huey and they're trying to and uh it just was windy and so they land and i'm like all right jesus so the crew chief jumps out and i'm like oh my god now we've got a guy on the ground we don't know what's going on it could be we don't know what's happening so uh yeah sergeant deal corporal deal only sergeant deal at the time you see him sprinting like a world-class sprinter hits up you know these are six foot walls you know he jumps up like a marine obstacle course flies over it next wall flies over it and then I grabs the flag pulls the flag down and uh Sprints back and hops, in the airplane takes off. I'm like, "Oh my god, that was stupid!" And so, we get gas, and then uh, we head up to uh, the Air Force Academy, just outside of To And uh, there's no one there. No American forces have been there yet. And I, you know, I see there's flags flying, and there's, it's an academy, and I'm like, "All right, this is." So I tell my co-pilot, "Hey, we're gonna land, and I'm gonna hop out. I'm just gonna take a quick peek in these buildings." And uh, and he's probably looking like, "You gotta be kidding me." So I land and I hop out, I grab my M4 and I'm like, hey, listen, things turn south, just take off, right? Just take off. Don't, 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 don't you just leave me here, right? I've put you through enough. So I kick open the door. It looks like a barracks building for the Air Force Academy. And there's these big tapestries on the wall, pictures of Saddam Hussein and cool stuff. And so I'm like, I'm ripping them off the wall. Like, I'll get a few of these and we can share them. And and uh I get to the second floor and it's a uh it's like a barracks room and it's like, you know. Iraqi helmets and you know, little just trinket stuff, and so as it happens, the door kicks open, and I got my flight helmet on, and behind me, and I whip around, and it's the crew chief. He looks at me. He's like, "Sir, what the hell are you doing?" And I'm just like, you know, you, you know, you're not doing the right thing uh, when you have a you know a young sergeant telling you, "Let's go. You're better than this. Let's get cracking." He looks around. And he's like, "Holy crap!" So he starts grabbing. So, so we we got a couple hats and a couple drinks to make sure we have something for everybody. And and uh, yeah, I have run back to helicopter and uh, the Huey had landed. Another crew chief gets out, and, and we left. We took off. And then, uh, yeah, that was not my not not my best day, um, not my best day. And uh, my CO kind of let me off the hook on that one. He just I don't know, a couple of days later, he was like, "Hey, if anyone's hunting for souvenirs, let's let's not do that." I was like, whew, that was, I dodged a butt chewing right there. So I happy. yeah, it's happened. You know, you had a little extra time and figured we didn't know if we'd ever be back there and, you know, grab a couple, you know, a couple flags or whatever just to take home. And, uh, you
0: know, You know, you, you shared about like the absolute intensity of the experience and like, you know, your helicopter spinning around and doing three sixties and like flying through a sandstorm and you can't see anything and the just extreme danger and stress of it that I feel like, you know, some, like something that's a little on the prankish side to lighten the mood (laughs) is that has gotta be, you gotta let that slide.
1: Yeah. No, it was, it was good. Um. And I think when we went when we went you know, we went right back into it after that we were back up into crit and the last of forces so we got you know there's a lot of a lot of a lot of heavy use of heavy use of us in the days ahead but yeah that was uh yeah prank that's the best way to describe it you know it's that it's that seventh grade uh you know seventh grade boy and you comes out and you're just like you can't help it. you just you go do it so yeah
0: Exactly. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's a nice, lighthearted thing that you know, have a little fun while you're in the danger zone, right? Um, so you know, thank you for sharing all this. As this is, can you survive this podcast? I have to ask you, are you up for a hypothetical survival scenario? Absolutely amazing. So, like I share with most most of the guests, you know, the audience will follow along at home, um, hopefully have some entertainment, but also education. So if I give you an A, B choice, but you feel like you have a C, you know I, I'd, I'd actually go with something else to feel free to elaborate, and we'll uh, we'll see how we do.: Absolutely. All right, so let me get my notes out, and all right, here we go. For this scenario. You are a lone soldier who's been separated from your unit during a mission in a hostile city. Your radio is malfunctioning, and you have no way to connect, to contact anyone for help. You must navigate the city and survive until you can find your way back to safety. First question, do you A, try to find a high vantage point to get your bearings, or B, stay put and wait for your unit to find you? yeah it's a good one um, you
1: know we would have so that's a good yeah, you know see it all depends right so yeah so normally if i if i'm trapped right i'm in a unit i'm, I'm with your scenario they know where i was they someone knows where i was last seen to account for uh, we hopefully were a good unit and we had a accountability program or a rally point if hey things go south when we get here go back to here now if that all fell through and they're gone and they just forgot about me um I am not waiting for anybody. Uh, I have my, I'll have my own personal E and E plan, escape and evasion plan, um, and it probably would be getting to a place where I feel I could orient my. If for some reason I wasn't oriented, if I, you know, if I had a map and I hadn't committed to memory, or I have a map and I wasn't sure I was, I didn't have a GPS. You know, I, I would try to get myself. I would try to find a safe space where I could build the most situational awareness possible, and from there decision making time right these are decisions i'm making now because i'm in i'm in i'm in deep uh i'm in deep kimchi so yeah i think a combination of what i would do i'm not waiting for anybody though unless i was told to wait and i knew that was a great plan and i was that type of unit so it's you know you know it's you don't know but in general i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna put myself on my own back and get myself out of there
0: yeah yeah exactly you're not waiting around sounds like this is more of like an a leaning towards a with a little bit of your own elaboration so Um, you decide to find a high vantage point to get your bearings. You work your way up a tall building and see that you're several blocks away from your unit's last known location. As you start to make your way towards them, you hear gunfire in the distance. Do you A, head towards the gunfire to investigate the situation, or B, stealthily make your way towards your team's location, avoiding any potential conflict?
1: Yeah, that's good. Another good question. So um, if I, so gunfire is going to be, so if, if we're the only unit, it would sound like it was a, you know, kind of a, a one unit type event. So if anyone's shooting anyone, that's usually, that's our guys shooting at their guys or their guys shooting at our guys. Um, yeah, so if I could see it, abs- I would absolutely take a look to see where it is. You look at uh, obvious avenues of approach. If I see another enemy, where would the enemy be coming from? We probably know that already. Where there are other bases and stations to reinforce from. I don't want to walk up onto a unit unarmed if I'm, if I'm armed, that's fine. I'm a, a person of one. Um, I would go to the gunfire. That makes sense because that's most likely as stealthily as I can. So it's probably a combination of each. Uh, I'm not in a dead sprint because I look like an American. I have American kit on, depends where I am. Um, and so I would stick out, uh, American weapons, et cetera. So I' do that as quickly as I could but I, I think my best choice number one I want to go help I want to go help my unit out and they're the ones probably taking the fire uh, and number two if it's not my unit it'll be another unit that is allied to me in some way that makes sense and number three I want to be there to help you know I'm, I'm there to help and that's my that's my day job so don't wanna don't want to miss the fight
0: great great answer I like that um okay so you make your way towards the unit. And as you make your way through the streets, you come across a group of hostile fighters. Do you engage the hostiles in combat or circumnavigate the hostiles by finding an alternate route?
1: You know, as a Marine, the essence of what we do on the ground is maneuver warfare, right? So you're looking for surfaces and gaps. So when I find a surface, that would be that that enemy unit, I'm gonna attempt to bypass them. Doesn't make you so my mission if my mission now is to link up with my unit. I'm going to bypass them because that's my number one goal. If my mission is to E&E, get myself out of there, I'm going to bypass a strong point, look for weak points uh, and try to find my unit. I think that makes sense without knowing more. So it's a little bit of a combination answer. Um, you know, I don't, I don't need to uh, sacrifice myself uh, for uh, in a, being hit by a squad of enemy that I could simply bypass if they're not doing anything right now. Report that enemy, you know, make it a better... You know, in theory, my mind thinks, "Hey, I can report where they are. I get around, link up with my unit. We can call in supporting arms, do other things." Vice me getting the random chance of you know maybe getting a couple bad guys, and they're eventually going to get me with firepower. So, and I don't want to be dragged through the streets as a lone guy and be a propaganda tool either. So,
0: yeah. All right, so long answer.
1: I should just give you A and B next time. How about that?
0: No, that actually it's better this way because it's kind of you know it's educating the audience as we go. So thank you for that. Thank you for the extra explanation. Sure. And so it's basically B. Basically B. So you got that. You choose to circumnavigate the hostiles uh, and find an alternate route. Um, as you progress, you stumble upon a collapsed section of road obstructing your path do you a cautiously navigate through the rubble or b go back the way you came
1: um yeah another good question so you know i don't know anything about the rubble the, the pieces i don't know the history of it how long we've been in this town or city uh, or or, or by, you know bypass places are they normally booby trapped I mean, looking at landmines or an ied of some sort um, i don't necessarily want to go back the way i came uh, because there's nothing back. we've determined that nothing back there. There's no friendly forces, only enemy forces. So I think I'm, you know, I've, I've had good luck so far. Um, I'm trusting myself. And if if I, I don't know what it looks like, but I think I can get around it or navigate it. I'll probably get around it and navigate it.
0: Very, very smart answer. Very smart. <laughs> and you're, you're foreshadowing what's to come because <laughs> uh, you decide to navigate through the rubble carefully making your way through the debris and you suddenly trigger a hidden explosive device. Mm. So do you a quickly assess your injuries and administer first aid or B ignore the pain, press on and allow adrenaline to drive you forward. I don't think
1: a is even probably an option. Uh, I think adrenaline's pumping anyway. I don't think a, I don't think it's in any of our DNA. Um, It's not like it's a fight or flight piece unless I'm broken and I can't move. Um, my brain says, number one, I'm going to get out of the way and get to cover as quickly as I can. And, hope, and the enemy may be thinking it was a dog or a cat or a goat or whatever it was that triggered it. And then they come there, they don't see anybody. Yeah, it could have been a goat, who knows, or whatever it's going to be, or it got away, or maybe they don't expect to see anything. Um, I think adrenaline is going to carry the day anyway um, for a while. Um, but yeah, me sitting there in the open, um, putting on an ace bandage isn't going to do me any good. Now, if my if something's if it's traumatic and I can't move, then I, you know, I try to get out of the way best I can, but it's
0: a tough one. Great. So you press on and then you realize there are enemies closing in on your six. Do you A, crawl into a nearby sewer system or B, hide in the rubble?
1: Crawl into a sewer system, rubble. So sewer system, I don't want to go any place where I know I can't get out. I don't want to, I don't want to be one grenade toss away from Toast. So I don't want, you know, you, you, there's no options, right? There's option A, you go in a tunnel, you don't know if it leads anywhere else. It, if sewer system may, but it may not. If you're talking rubbleized, if there's rubble in the area, that sewer system be, could be collapsed, etc. cetera. Um, I also don't want to drown in the sewer system that I don't know has another duct going somewhere. So I, I'd probably get rid of that. That option's probably out. Uh, hide in the rubble, you know, I would, my intent would be to probably circumnavigate behind that unit again um potentially if they're if they're the ones uh, going to the fight uh to the sounds of the guns too it's easier for me to follow them because they know where they're going if they're going to go reinforce their own troops and it probably gives me a little more situational awareness of where our guys are if i could do that right if i'm not so badly injured but playing old hiding yeah i don't like that i don't i don't like i don't like being hunted <laughs> it's, it's no yeah. good for me
0: yeah so you're going to navigate. You're kind of choosing. You're not going to the sewers, but you're not going to stay in the rubble either. You're going to nope. navigate out of there and try to maybe get behind them or find some kind of tactical route I, that you can take.
1: Absolutely right. I'd probably get behind. If, if it looks to me like they're going to the fight, I'm going to try to get behind them or wait for them to pass and just shadow them the best I can. I'm not a ninja, you know, but I'd shadow them the best I possibly could. And if it seems like they're the ones that are going to the fight. So that's my best chance of finding my unit.
0: Yeah, smart, smart. So you continue on and you head towards the next rendezvous point. Um, When you get there, you find your unit has already moved on to a different location. Do you A, head straight to the next rendezvous point or B, rest and assess the situation? You
1: know, I think it's, I think it's see all the above, right? I think, you know, if it's a safe place and it was only known to us, so rendezvous points are usually, you know, it's safe, it wasn't compromised. I'm going to I'm gonna take a knee for a minute. If I was injured, I'm going to check myself out. I'm going to think about, you know, I'm going to think about where the next place is. If I know I can find rendezvous point A, I'm going to rendezvous point B as an alternate. I'd likely have a map with me. Um, I'd probably take some time to map out what I think is, you know, you know are there are there you know are there fields is it is it a is it a you know commercial area is it a downtown business area is it very urban is it a little bit of urban sprawl that can let me through there is it more rural that I can get through there so that I would take a little bit of time to map my next trip. Um, not counting on my last successes but it seems like I've made it this far so I don't want to, I don't want to blow it now.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Okay last question. All right. You continue on to the next rendezvous point. And as you do, you come across a wounded civilian who needs medical attention. Do you a ignore the civilian and continue towards the rendezvous point or B provide medical aid to the civilian?
1: Well, this is the great moral dilemma we all face, isn't it? Right. This is, this is a, this is my sophomore year philosophy class. Uh, You know, it really all depends, right? You know, it all, it's, if, if it's a wounded civilian, You know, it's if it's, you know, if it's if it's a kid or somebody's sister, you know, you know, we're all humans, you know, um, uh, how bad are they hurt if if they, you know, they're wounded there and they're bleeding their leg and they don't see me. They're not gonna if it's not if it's like, if it's life threatening, like they're dying and they're bleeding out. I'm not a surgeon. I can't fix that anyway. And their last words don't need to be screaming my name. Um, so yeah it's it's not it, it, do I feel empathy absolutely am i am I sympathetic to any human of course I am um, I'd have to assess how badly you know injured they were and and if I could really do any help like what could I do triage wise like I give them a band-aid and drink of water but if that cost me a lot of my life and it didn't necessarily save theirs or they didn't need that type of saving they were to live anyway and that's um that's an unnecessary sacrifice so difficult question I get where you're Trying to you know get there, but uh, I don't have the answer for that one.
0: Somewhere in between. Yeah, that that's <laughs> actually a great answer because on the last question, it's actually a A or B could be correct, you yeah. know. And and so well said, you know, you have to kind of deduce it. If is am I going to be able to actually help, or is this going to actually cost you your life, and you never even were able to help him anyway? Is you have to assess that. So, um. Well said. And so you continue on and you finally reach the rendezvous point. You meet up with your unit and together you're able to call for extraction and make it to safety back to base. Congratulations. You have survived this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Th- thanks for playing along. Oh, uh, yeah. And thanks so much for coming on. Uh, really, some really very amazing insights. Um, I would love to have you back sometime, you know, when maybe when your next book comes out, sure. yeah, um, absolutely. but in the meantime, where can people find you? Where can people find your book? The book is ghosts of Baghdad. Uh, but where can people find you if they want more info or anything like that? Yeah, great. So it's,
1: it's tough. It's a uh, Eric is my website. And, uh, on there, you can order books. You can order them through my publisher ballast and I'll sign happy to sign them for you. Um, you can order them through. There's links to Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, but you get books. The book anywhere you want to get your books. Uh, you know, it's available in hardcover through, you know, Target and Ballast and Amazon, and it's also on Kindle. It's on Audible. Kent Lutt does a great Audible version of it. Uh, you can get it on Audible, and so it's op- it's really open to anywhere you want. You find your best books. But if you want to know more about what I'm doing, um, I'll have this podcast on when it finally whenever it comes out. I'll put it on. Uh, you can hit my, uh, my website, look in the media pages, uh, see interviews, see articles. I write, and stay in touch however you like.
0: Fantastic. Eric, That's it. And the book is ghosts of Baghdad. And yeah, thanks again for coming on and bye everyone.